Welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Happy Hump Day. Welcome into Soccer Morning here on WorldSoccerTalk.com. Glad to have you on the program today. Should be an excellent one. We're going to take a tour around the headlines here in just a couple of seconds. And then after that, our friend Peter McVitie, who covers Dutch football, will join us. We're going to talk talk about the Eredivisie and the season as it went. Talk about the breakup of PSV. Talk about Memphis Depay to United. Then we'll talk some American topics. Aaron Johansson killing it at Azad Alkmaar. Rubio Rabin at Utrecht. We'll get a check on his status, his pro- progress there in uh, the Netherlands. And we'll also talk about this weird news that came up a couple weeks ago about Billy Bean joining Azed as a consultant. Exactly what, how is that going to work? And who will be his Jonah Hill in Holland? Is there, a Hol- is there a Dutch version of Jonah Hill that we can identify? That's, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for listening, as I said. I just stopped myself cold there by thinking about the Dutch version of Moneyball in a soccer context. Let's hit these headlines. You may or may not have heard about this. Xavi Hernandez set to announce his departure, well, his departure from Barcelona, but more importantly, that he'll be playing in Qatar very soon. Now, I've been filled in on some of the details of this. I saw the headline. I saw the news. I didn't dive in deeper. Producer Trevor tells me that Xavi's going to have a a cherry deal there in Qatar. His family's all going to get jobs. He's going to be able to play soccer while also running an academy and coaching. So he'll get some experience there. I guess the question for us as American fans of a league that has a tendency to sign these older players on the backside of their careers who could still maybe get a job done in MLS and certainly would bring people through the door via their names is whether or not MLS missed out on this. Now, I don't think any MLS team is going to give Xavi Hernandez the deal that he got to go to Qatar. But it still it still seems like a little bit of a missed opportunity, unless you're one of those people who says, please, no more players who are essentially retiring. If if he's going to go and coach and do all these other things, and this sounds like more of a retirement situation. Maybe MLS was too much of a challenge for Xavi. That, we can paint it that way, right? Maybe we'll just say it that way. Too much of a challenge for Xavi. MLS. Yeah, he's just not good enough anymore. Minnesota United has issued a statement regarding their efforts to get a stadium deal done in Minneapolis. They've had some snags here. Quote, the, the, unfortunately, the legislature during the regular, le, regular legislative session, this is hard to say quickly, excuse me, was unable to reach an agreement on a number of important issues, including a tax bill, or to consider our request for tax relief and economic development tools that have been used for every professional sports facility, as well as many major building projects throughout the state, said Minnesota United. President Nick Rogers. Our belief that Major League Soccer is a fantastic economic and cultural opportunity for our region is confirmed by the outpouring of support for the soccer experience from current fans, the huge amount of um, the huge amateur soccer community throughout Minnesota, organizations representing business and community, blah, blah, blah. We feel our stadium proposal, which is unprecedented and involves no governmental funds for stadium construction creates the basis for moving forward in a positive partnership with the community. Now, I think they're frustrated, obviously, in Minnesota. Frustrated that the legislature has uh, refused to move forward on these things. 
despite the fact that from their perspective, the deal looks very good for the state of Minnesota, for the city of Minneapolis. Now imagine that some pressure from the city, if they're on board, and that's all, all indications are that they are, could, could move the state. But for the time being, this remains an un, an unaccomplished task for MLS as they look to continue to expand. You go to Minnesota, you hold a big announcement, you shake Bill McGuire's hands, he get up, he gets up there, he thanks everybody, and here we are, stadium deal undone. And in light, and I continue to mention this because I think it's continued, it's important to continue to mention it, in light of the funding gap in Orlando and the lack of a stadium for NYCFC, these things are not all going well for MLS these days. Tonight is the second round of the U.S. Open Cup 2015. We actually did have one game last night. I think Portland Timbers 2 may have won. I'll have to check on the status or the score of that game. But you have the rest of the second round games tonight, including Soccer Morning's adopted team, and everybody else is going to adopt them too, but that's okay. Harpo's FC out of Colorado who take on the Colorado Colorado Springs switchbacks in Colorado Springs. Tonight, this is the the last truly amateur team. The last, it's a pub team, for lack of a better description. It's a team put together by a brewing company, a microbrewing company down or out in Colorado. So they're your team. Lock in on Harpo's FC. Everybody's pulling for them, right? Absolutely. Sporting Kansas City versus New England tonight in MLS. So you get some midweek action there. Bad news for Sporting Kansas City suffering from a litany of injuries and uh, unlikely to be able to fill out a full 18 tonight. We need some bodies, said Peter Vermees. That's what we need at the moment. If he doesn't come back, and he's talking about Saad Abdul Salam, who was recalled from San Antonio where he was out on loan, we would only have 16, and that includes two goalkeepers. So this is not, uh, things are not going well right now for Sporting Kansas City on the injury front. Graham Zusi is sidelined. No Sesinovich, obviously. So we've got, uh, well, not obviously. He, he missed, uh, he had a collision in the DC United game, and we'll miss this one. Roger Espinosa, Marcel De Jong, both uh, questionable. Bernardo Anor is out with a hamstring strange, strain. Excuse me. Chance Meyer is still working his way back from a season ending injury last year. So uh, Sporting Kansas City has a tough road to hoe. Tonight in MLS action. Uh, we're going to talk about this. I, I don't know. I, I don't know where to talk about this. I don't know how to talk about this, but Qatar is considering an underwater TV studio. I'm just going to leave that out there. They're actually talking to somebody about building a TV studio underwater for 2022. Uh, and also in Canada, Lucas Cavallini, who is a, a Canadian of Uruguayan extraction, playing his soccer down in Uruguay has ripped the Canadian national team and said he regrets playing for them. He's a 22-year-old player right now out uh, down in Uruguay, out on loan from Nacional to another club. This has been unearthed by our friend Vince from Toronto, this uh, interview, which was conducted in Spanish. We're going to see exactly what the fallout from this might be. Madame Tussauds in New York has unveiled a, an elect, sorry, wow, a Lionel Messi statue. I don't know where that was going. Maybe I wish it was an Alexi Lawless statue. Not statue. Uh, wax figure. Because that's what Madame Tussauds does, right? A Lionel Messi wax figure 
And uh, Graham Parker, a guy I know, a guy I like, a writer at ESPN FC, says Lionel Messi's wax statue in New York illustrates soccer's growth in the United States. Okay, sure. I, I suppose. Let's talk about who the first American player should be at Madame Tussauds. I'm not saying it should happen now, but at some point you would imagine that there's got to be room for an American soccer player at Madame Tussauds. Who should that be? Should it be Alexi Lawless? He'd certainly make for a good statue circa 1994. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're actually going to talk to John Wallen from Taga. He's got a Women's World Cup Challenge app, and we'll go through that. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com. I'm Jason Davis, and I want to invite Soccer Morning listeners to join me this Friday for Columbus against Chicago. During the game, I'm going to be sharing my thoughts and opinions about the MLS action at Rabble.tv. It's a brand new television experience that gives fans the ability to talk and banter about the beautiful game. You'll get a chance to hear my opinions about Crew SC and the Fire, as well as post questions to me via the live conversations thread. If you have an iPhone, that's great. You can use the Rabble app to hear me. Or you can go directly to the website at Rabble.tv. So come on, Soccer Morning listeners. Mark your calendars for this Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern. And let's hang out together at Rabble.tv to talk Crew SC, Fire, and MLS. I look forward to seeing you there at Rabble.tv. We're just about three weeks away from the Women's World Cup tournament that kicks off on June 6th, and World Cup fever is starting to build. To stay on top of all action and to support your national team, be sure to download the new app entitled Women's World Cup Challenge. With the free app, you can get a schedule of the entire tournament, play a fantasy game to guess which teams will advance from group stages and then which teams move through the knockout rounds, create and join groups to compete against your friends for pride and prizes, Watch the Match Center to follow all of the games live while you're at work and read the latest news about all the teams. Developed by an Austin startup who are massive soccer fans, the app is available as a free download for Apple and Android devices in the App and Play stores. Follow the Women's World Cup this summer and support the stars of the women's game by downloading Women's World Cup Challenge today. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. All right, so you may have caught us uh, changing things on the fly just a little bit. We now have on the line John Wallen from Taga. We're going to talk about the Women's World Cup here and the uh, special Women's World Cup Challenge app that John is behind. We'll get to Peter McVitie on Dutch football a little bit later in the show. We're definitely going to do that. John, how are you? I'm doing very well, Jason. Thank you very much for having me on this morning. It's good to have you. Let's uh, let's talk about the the Women's World Cup Challenge app and use that to uh, to get into the build up to the Women's World Cup in Canada coming up very very soon. First, uh, describe what the app is and and what uh, what fans can do with it. Yeah, sure. Um, so the Women's World Cup app is available through both Apple and Google uh, the Play Store. It's uh, it's a comprehensive app that's going to allow fans to follow along. Uh, it's got a live stats 
that are going to be streaming during matches. Those are coming in directly from Opta. A lot of fans know our, our top provider of live match data. Um, it's going to have some insight, uh, some predictive analysis, and then also it's going to have a two-tier bracket challenge, which is going to be both for the group stage and then once the group stage is concluded for the knockout stage for the top 16 teams left in the tournament. Uh, so at this point, when you look at the preparations that these teams are going through, uh, the United States just beat Mexico. I know that there's probably warm-up matches happening uh, in, in various other places as the top teams get ready. What what we're finding is that uh, that injury is going to be a major part, at least of the initial stages of this tournament. Yeah, I think injury is going to factor very heavily uh, in terms of early performance for a lot of the teams that are being touted as the I guess the favorites to, to lift the cup, you know, both Germany uh, and the United States are dealing with injuries to probably their two biggest min, uh, midfield stars. Obviously for the United States, anybody that just watched that five, nothing win against Mexico noted the very obvious absence of Alex Morgan. I know you had Alex on your show recently and she's dealing with a, a bone bruise that may rule her out of the last of the friendlies coming up to the United States on May 30th against South Korea. And if she's still not fit to play then, you do have to call into question her ability to play, um, you know, play well when the group stage opens for the United States. And, and looking at Germany, who are the number one ranked women's team in the world right now, they're going to be without Nadine Kessler, uh, who has a left knee injury. She plays for Wolfsburg, her club football, and Wolfsburg back in March said that she would miss the World Cup. As a result of that, she wasn't named the provisional squad. She hasn't taken part in any of the World Cup ramp-up. And that was thought to be mitigated a bit, I guess, by the fact that they had uh, Lira uh, Alushi, uh, who's the PSG midfielder. Uh, Miss Alushi is now going to miss the tournament. She's 27 years old. She's going to miss the tournament through a pregnancy. Mm. So Germany, while they're, you know, obviously the world number one, obviously a presumptive favorite to at least progress to the knockout stage, they're looking at needing to fill in for two of possibly their best midfield players. Well, when you look at the, the, the tournament as it's laid out and, and the groups that, uh, that these countries are drawn into, I mean, just like the Men's World Cup, the draw is a lot of how things are going to play out. For the United States, a fairly, I mean, look, it's all relative here. And we know that the distance between the top women's teams and the next tier is fairly wide. But when it comes to the group stage draw, the United States got a, a fairly difficult one. How are the how are these other teams going to be affected in the group stage um, via the draw with these injuries considered? Well, I think that you know the draw is going to be very difficult for the United States, as you mentioned. We can touch on that a little bit. Germany has a slightly easier draw. They're drawn in Group B together with Thailand, with Ivory Coast, and with Norway. And both Ivory Coast and Thailand are beneficiaries of the fact that the Women's World Cup has expanded to 24 teams this year, the largest ever field for the Women's World Cup. You're seeing a lot of nations that uh, maybe started a a women's football program uh, more recently in the 70s or in the 80s, um, sometimes even up into the early 90s, don't really have the infrastructure, the money, don't have the uh, coaching infrastructure in place to ensure that they're, I mean, again, they all deserve to be there. They've all qualified through their, uh, their continental competitions. But when you look at somebody like Jill Ellis, who's now the manager, the head coach, of the U.S. women's team, and she's somebody that is the former development director of the U.S. Soccer Federation. You know, she's twice an interim coach. You know, she's 48 years old. She's a lifetime football uh, professional. When you have somebody like that at the helm of your nation, somebody who's been working with these players for a long time, is familiar with them from the time that they were in the U-17s, the U-21s, mm-hmm. you're going to have a better opportunity to vet those skills. Um, and that's going to translate very directly to the success of the bigger clubs in the group stage. So for Germany, 
In Group B, Norway, very, very difficult draw. But even if they come out with a loss or a draw against Norway, Germany's going to move through. And yeah. they're going to record wins against uh, you know, the Ivory Coast. They're going to yeah. record a win against Thailand. You know, the, the, there's an element, as I said, you, you said the, the, the tournament's expanded to 24 teams. That's, that's a good thing on one hand. It gives all of these, uh, these, these new programs and these younger, uh, players and, uh, some of them who aren't, aren't even professionals, I would imagine, a, an experience at the top level. But at the same time, we're going to see some pretty crazy score lines in this tournament, are we not? We are absolutely going to see some very lopsided score lines. And anybody who's familiar with the Women's World Cup, is familiar with lopsided scorelines. We've seen 8-1. We've seen 7 nothing in the past. Um, and, again, you know, it is it is so important that the tournament expanded. It's so important that, as you mentioned, some of these semi-professional uh, or collegiate players, uh, you know, frankly, some, uh, some amateur players are able to come out, they're able to represent their country, and they're able to get that experience. You know, turning back to, to Group D, where the United States is, a lot of experience, you know, is, is being had at the younger levels. And one of the reasons that the United States group is being considered the, the group of guests isn't just because they are drawn with Sweden, who's number five in the world. It's not just because of Australia, uh, who's number 10 in the world. It's because the fourth team in that group is Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Nigeria just won um, the African Women's Championship. That's how they qualified for the World Cup. They're the number 33-rated team in the world. And uh, last year in Canada, Canada hosted the U-20. Women's World Cup, and Nigeria uh, finished runners-up in that tournament. Mm. So, getting that experience at a younger level, having that that development path, is is very instrumental to this success. And uh, personally, I'm very happy to see the tournament expanded. And you know, I think we can all live with a couple of eight nothing, um, <laughs> eight nothing results. If four years from now, that means that there are 24 teams that are able to compete on very level footing. What well, do you feel as though that FIFA went uh, got jumped the gun a little bit on 24 teams, or is this the right time to do that? There are certain people that are better positioned to answer that question than I am. And when I, when I read them, when I listen to them, I think they all feel like that knife cuts both ways. Um, certainly, it's going to be an important, it's going to be an important World Cup, not only because of the expansion, also because it's occurring in Canada, the largest base for professional women's football is still the North American continent. Uh, when you look at, for example, the Mexican roster that the United States just played, a large number of those ladies play their professional football in the United States. Uh, Mexico doesn't have a professional league. Um, so there is a huge focus on women's football here. I think expanding it to 24 teams when you have the largest audience uh, captivated by the sport it is the right time. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Mexico. So much of what uh, Mexico's program is is dependent on dual internationals. And in the women's game, you know, obviously the strength of the United States means that a lot of those women playing college, they're Americans, they're playing college soccer here, but they have Mexican heritage. The, op- the only opportunity they have to play international soccer is with Mexico. And that's, that's a good thing. But on the other hand, it, it does shine a light on the fact that Mexico doesn't have an infrastructure for a lot of their their native female players to come through is that the case i mean you know we, i don't expect you to be an expert on everybody's program but i imagine that that's sort of the way things are for a lot of countries right now yeah it's it's certainly true that you have essentially you know the two big professional leagues you have the reorganization of the women's super league uh, in europe and the women's super league two and you have the uh, you know the professional league here in the united states when you look at, again, because we're expanding to 24 teams, because this is going to get such good um, regional coverage in the United States, it's going to be 
uh, you know, broadcast on one of the major networks uh, in England and in other countries in Europe. Because of that, you're going to get familiarity with a lot of women um, a lot of setups that don't necessarily get that coverage, don't necessarily get that support all the time. Um, and you're going to, you know, you're going to hear stories about both ends of the spectrum as a result. You know, Mexico's coach, uh, Leonardo Cuyar, he's been their, their head coach uh, of the national team for, for 14 years, for 15 years. He's been there for forever. Um, and while that kind of stability is probably very good uh, on a club level, you know, as we've maybe seen with Manchester United or Arsenal in the Premier League, you know, for an international setup, you have to almost wonder if that makes them a little bit stale, if it makes them a little bit uh, reticent to change, to bring in new techniques, to bring in new training, um, and that maybe a shakeup uh, predicated on poor results in an expanded World Cup will actually be really good for the women's game in a lot of these countries. Absolutely, and, you know I don't want to get into the, the the philosophical arguments and the sort of the the, the state of the women's game um, from that <laughs> level. I mean, we we do have a tournament to talk about, and again, coming back to uh, uh, you know coming back to how fans can interact with this tournament. This is this is since uh, you know since the last time the United States hosted, and obviously we've taken massive steps forward both in the women's game and in media and in how we interact with each other uh, via social media and the like. Um, this will be the opportunity for fans to really, you know, to, to pay attention, to get engaged. And, and I think the app is obviously a, a great way to do that. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, when we looked around, and, and you know, Target does do other uh, fantasy soccer applications, you know, most notably for the Premier League. When we looked around, we realized that, you know, the women's game was severely underserved, that there wasn't a, an app that was dedicated uh, to women's soccer. And we wanted to engage our entire fan base. We do have a lot of women players that play uh, Fantasy Premier League. Um, obviously, there is a, a huge uh, population of uh, North American women, European women that play the game themselves. And we are seeing, as you mentioned, you know, huge social media presence for those people, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, Alex Morgan having, you know, 1.4 million followers on Twitter, whether it's, you know, accounts like Soccer Girl Problems linking up with TV to announce like the new Nike kits and, and getting to interview Tobin Heath and Sydney LaRue. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting, really awesome and frankly, incredibly exciting stuff that's going on with women's football right now. And we just wanted to do our part. Um, apps going to be completely free. People are going to be able to compete uh, in featured groups against uh, Gail Averbuck, who's you know a U.S. Women's National mm-hmm. Team player. She's not in the 23 this year, but um, former National Team player of Mexico, the former captain actually, Martin Gonzalez has a group. So awesome. we're really excited. You know, women's football seems to be really embracing us, and, and we're really happy to embrace it right you now. Should, you should know both of those people, Monica Gonzalez. Obviously, a TV presence, and then Yale Alverbach, who's actually a very good writer, by the way. Um, John, we uh, let's let's turn into, and you mentioned Taga's got other stuff, and obviously the the Premier League is the. I imagine that that's the biggest uh, in terms of of driving fantasy interest. That's the biggest league in the, uh, in the world. It's it's the most visible. It's obviously on television in the states in a big big way. Uh, we got one week left of the of the Premier League. Uh, when you look at the way this season has played out. Are you? Uh, is there anything that stands out to you as, as sort of um, in, not not just from a fantasy perspective, but just from a soccer perspective that, that that's interesting to you? Yeah, I guess you know Chelsea being able to clinch the league as, as early as they did, uh, and the way that both Liverpool and and Tottenham sort of fell away that they weren't able to sustain the success um, that made you know people thought they were going to build on coming into this year, uh, and again both following like prodigious buying programs last summer. Uh, so I think maybe for all the talk of, you know, you buy your way to a championship, 
it's being shown that, you know, good tactics, um, a core of solid players are, are really still going to be able to win the Premier League. Not to say they're not expensive players, not to say Chelsea didn't do a great job of picking and choosing which players to have in. But I was really surprised to see that they were able to clinch the title, you know, with, with a few matches still to go. You think that says more about Chelsea and Mourinho or about City and United and Arsenal and everybody else who was nominally a challenger? Yeah, I, I think it speaks volumes about both, frankly. Um, Chelsea have really changed the way, and not, again, not to delve too deep into, you know, the, the economics of the game or the politics of having, you know, an entire squad that's capable of challenging on four fronts domestically in cup competitions and in Europe, while also having out on loan, you know, a team of players effectively that Chelsea had that probably could have done the same thing, um, had they all been retained, uh, to play for their parent club. But I think, the, the concern more is maybe the the lack of consistency that you're seeing from the next generation of players that we're expecting to lead the Premier League. Now that Steven Gerrard is moving on to MLS, uh, Frank Lampard moving on to MLS, uh, you know, you're seeing a lot of big name players, uh, one team or, you know, one club or two club players moving into their, either into being pundits, uh, moving into the um, United States, uh, or just frankly moving into retirement. So for me, I mean, seeing 20-year-old Raheem Sterling in a Liverpool kit, Liverpool supporter, happy to see it, hope he stays. But at the same time, we'd really like to see a better set of consistent performances out of mm. Henderson, out of Sterling, out of Coutinho than we really got, uh, especially during the run-in. Mm. You know, I just heard that uh, at a ceremony for Liverpool Award in, in the season awards, uh, Raheem Sterling booed when given the Young Player of the Year award by Liverpool fans. So that doesn't <laughs> yeah. seem, that doesn't seem like it's going in a good direction, John. No, it certainly doesn't. And you know, it's a, I mean, kind of a slap in the face to a twenty-year-old kid who's done nothing wrong. I mean, you can say that he talked out of school, or you know, you can say that maybe he's not as committed to the shirt as he should be. But the reality is. 20 years old, his performance has been at an exceptional level. I think that very often in all sports, we fall into this trap where we look at the very best of the best and we look at what they achieved at the same age. And then we expect it for every other player that we want to hold to that standard. And you can't look at, you know, Messi, you can't look at Ronaldo and then look at Sterling and say, yeah, but he's not doing what they did. You know, I mean, if you were just to purely evaluate Raheem Sterling's performances, he is just outside of being team of the year. I mean, certainly Felipe Coutinho deserved that honor this year, and Sterling is maybe playing just a kick below him. You know, John, I'm looking at uh, playtalker.com, by the way, if you want to go check out the Premier League uh, game. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at the features of Taga, and what I'm, what I'm fascinated by are a couple of things. One, no salary cap, which is how every other fantasy soccer game works. You have $100 million or, or pretend money, and you, Certain players are valued, and you go and you, you assemble your team. Why would Taga do it differently? You know, I think, again, we kind of looked at the market, and we said, this isn't fun. You know, if I want to have uh, four players from Manchester City in my squad in a given week, I should be able to have four players. If I want to go out and assemble the Galacticos of the Premier League, I should be able to do that. And what we found once we tested the game a little bit was, if you go out and you assemble the Galacticos, you're not going to win our game. Um, not only do we play without a salary cap, not only do we play without squad limitations, but we actually value players very differently than most traditional salary cap games, which are, as you well know, Jason, they're goal heavy, they're assist yep. heavy. Yep. In Taga, we also, you know, we use, uh, again, an Opta stream, uh, and we're using stats like chances created, successful crosses, um, for defensive stats, we have interceptions, tackles one. Um, so you're looking at a more complete picture. 
players have a dynamic value that's constantly changing as the game evolves. And there are players, um, great example, I mean, Jason Punchy in this season, uh, Jushin Tadic from Southampton, uh, Kieran Trippier, the uh, wingback from Burnley. These are players that are top 20 players in our format and aren't top 20 players in many other formats around the globe. Th- that is interesting because uh, you're right. Every other fantasy game is very goal-dependent, as you said, assists. And, and when you have defenders on the field, it's uh, it's clean sheets, which are obviously not always down to an individual performance. Uh, that you, I think that's what you get most. I, I lose the thread on fantasy games, uh, um, to be honest, John, because... You know, because it, it just doesn't, it, it's not interesting to me to, to have a guy, oh, how many goals did he score? That's all that matters. There are obviously other elements to this game. And, and so what you're, you know, we, we can never approach, we can never put together a fantasy game that's going to actively replicate coaching a real team or putting together a real team. But, <laughs> but you've, you've done something that is more, that is closer to that than, than anything else that's, again, dependent on goals or assists or, or clean sheets. Well, no, thank you very much for that. I mean, we, we work very hard every day to try and do that. Um, one of the things we take pride in is we take uh, consumer feedback. We take user feedback every single day. We're always there at support at com. You can always find me on Twitter at Fantasy Gaffer. If you have a suggestion for how the game should be being played, you know, please let us know. We're trying to integrate as much information as we can so that, listen, we're not going to replicate the, the experience of managing a club, you know, as you said. But what we would like to do is make the game as fun as possible. We want a, a person who's maybe a Manchester City fan to be watching Sunderland Stoke and be as invested in that game as they are in, you know, in watching the Manchester Derby. And I think we've come, we've come very close to that. Um, you mentioned earlier that there are more games on the Premier League getting to have a, a larger global audience, particularly in North America. And what we found is when NBC is showing multiple games, the number of people that are actively engaged in our game goes up. Mm-hmm. People are flipping channels. They're watching you know, uh, multiple games, maybe picture in picture, or they're flipping through, and they want to immediately see, you know, did I get that? Did I get that point for that chance created by Mesut Ozil? Did I get that, you know, point for tackle one by John Terry? And it's, it's, it's an excellent thing to see. We're really excited that the community has embraced us as much as they have, and we want to keep putting out, you know, the top quality product that, that we are. That, that's that's fascinating. I mean, I I know that, uh, and I'm going to go big picture here again. Uh, friend of the show, Alexi Lawless, continually talks about the things that would help make MLS more popular. And and I don't know about your connection with MLS right now, but one of those things is fantasy sports. Some of it's about betting. Um, it was let's talk about fantasy sports since that's what you do. The the idea that you become engaged with the entirety of a league and you watch uh, you watch the games on television, television, especially those national uh, television games. Because you have an interest in player X, Y, or Z on another team, that hasn't. Do you think that's fully crossed over to soccer? Or you think Taga's getting closer to that than maybe some other products, or you know, where does that lie right now? Yeah, I think it's great that you mentioned uh, you know that you mentioned Alexi Wallace. Obviously, when you have uh, people of that stature in the American soccer community making that connection, I think it's all the more visible to, to everybody else. American sports culture is now almost predicated on your fantasy team. You know, the NFL realized that. Major League Baseball realized that. It, fantasy is what helped get Major League Baseball back out of the steroid era. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly think that while you have incredibly dedicated fan bases uh, for a number of MLS clubs, regionalism isn't as much a part of the fantasy experience. You can be, you know, a diehard New England Revolution supporter, and you can care incredibly much about them winning the supporter shield 
and you can still be disappointed, you know, when they keep your striker from getting on the score sheet. And I don't right. think that those two thoughts are incongruous. And I think that American sports fans, perhaps better than uh, any other sports fans, where a lot of fantasy is predicated on gambling, and, and perhaps that's becoming the norm in America as well. But I think American sports fans truly understand you can support your club and you can support your fantasy club and come away feeling all the better for the experience. Uh, so again, sort of um, as we as we get ready to wrap this up, I mean, let's come back to the Women's World Cup because obviously that's that's an event based element uh, to a, a fantasy game, which uh, I'm, you know it's a month long tournament. We're going to be able to interact with the tournament through the Women's uh, World Cup Challenge app. the The structure of it, how people can interact with each other, how does all of that work? Sure. So we just um, had an update done in the Apple Store. It's going to also be uh, done in the Google Play Store shortly. You're able to uh, sign up, create a private league, so you can challenge your friends. You're able to uh, invite people to your private league via uh, email, SMS, text message, Twitter, Facebook, um, any of those ways. You do get a referral bonus. We're uh, offering uh, Taga Design t-shirts. So if you come in, you refer 10 of your friends, they sign up for your mini league, we will let you pick one of our shirts. Send that to you as well as a thank you for supporting our game. Um, in terms of interacting with larger groups, as I mentioned, uh, Yale Averbucca and Monica Gonzalez, Kick TV, um, Soccer.com, those, um, they all have private leagues. They're all putting up prizes. Again, those are all free to enter. And uh, players that sign up to play the Women's World Cup Challenge can pick one of those groups, join one of those groups, and compete against one of those people. Okay, so, um, so what, what do you make of your chances, John? <laughs> if there's one thing I've learned, Jason, is that the more time I spend trying to analyze it, it's the worst I do. So I've just come through eight weeks of intently analyzing uh, the Women's Champions League, uh, all of the qualifying campaigns. So I anticipate that I'll get maybe 50% right. You know, that, 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 that's interesting here. The, the element that you're analyzing these players in a club context, because for the women's game especially, we tend to – you know the 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 professional leagues kind of get pushed to the side. The, the international game is so so important to the women's game. It's a, it's the it's the highest profile or the the highest level of the women's game that I don't I don't think that people really you know really go back and look and say okay how did this player play it you know PSG or or wherever that might be or the, there's certainly uh, English players who are playing you know in uh, for Arsenal and, and the like that stuff doesn't really get included very often. No, but it really should. And I'm hoping that the success of the recent Women's World Cup final is going to carry over, uh, and especially with the European audience, to having this very you know, vibrant uh, media coverage of women's football. I don't know if you were familiar with what happened, but I mean, just last week, Frankfurt won their fourth uh, Women's Champions League final. They beat Paris Saint-Germain in the final. The final was won in the 90th minute, mm -hmm. 2-1. I mean, it was, a, it was a very engrossing game. It was a game that showed sublime skill. Uh, Celia Sesic, who was named player of the tournament, a uh, German player, she's going to be on display um, at the Women's World Cup playing for Germany. You know, a lot of other uh, prominent women stars, Veronica Busquets was playing in that match as well. Um, she'll be playing in the Women's World Cup, and it will be a high-profile person that you'll probably come to know through, uh, you know, a lot of media. It, this is, it does feel almost like the United States before 1999, where there was this incredible in the United States movement behind their national team. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to feel uh, with the 2015 Canada tournament that 
multiple nations are behind their team, that we have 12 or 16 or 24 nations that are really coming together to help support the women's game. That'll be awesome. Uh, the Women's World Cup Challenge app, as John said, available in the iTunes and Google Play stores. Uh, John, anything else you want to share with us before I let you go? No, I just want to say I'm very happy to see you guys over at Sirius XMFC. Been a wonderful start. I wish you guys all the best, and thank you very much for having me on. Today. And, uh, John Wallen from Taga, playtaga.com for the fantasy games. And as I said, the app is available in your relevant store. John, thank you very much, and hopefully we'll be able to talk to you later on the tournament. Thank you very much, Jason. Let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk Dutch football with Peter McVitie. We'll review some happenings in the league, some outgoing players, and the Americans there. It's Soccer Morning on WorldSoccerTalk.com. Be right back. I'm Jason Davis, and I want to invite Soccer Morning listeners to join me this Friday for Columbus against Chicago. During the game, I'm going to be sharing my thoughts and opinions about the MLS action at Rabble.tv. It's a brand new television experience that gives fans the ability to talk and banter about the beautiful game. You'll get a chance to hear my opinions about Crew SC and the Fire, as well as post questions to me via the live conversations thread. If you have an iPhone, that's great. You can use the Rabble app to hear me. Or you can go directly to the website at Rabble.tv. So come on, Soccer Morning listeners. Mark your calendars for this Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern. And let's hang out together at Rabble.tv to talk Crew SC, Fire, and MLS. I look forward to seeing you there at Rabble.tv. We're just about three weeks away from the Women's World Cup Tournament that kicks off on June 6th, and World Cup fever is starting to build. To stay on top of all action and to support your national team, be sure to download the new app entitled Women's World Cup Challenge. With the free app, you can get a schedule of the entire tournament, play a fantasy game to guess which teams will advance from group stages and then which teams move through the knockout rounds, create and join groups to compete against your friends for pride and prizes, Watch the Match Center to follow all of the games live while you're at work and read the latest news about all the teams. Developed by an Austin startup who are massive soccer fans, the app is available as a free download for Apple and Android devices in the App and Play stores. Follow the Women's World Cup this summer and support the stars of the women's game by downloading Women's World Cup Challenge today. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. We are back on Soccer Morning. We're talking Dutch football with our friend Peter McVitie. You can follow him on Twitter. It's Peter McVitie, 1T. It's been a long time, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's been far too long. <laughs> it has been far too long. It's been so long that the Dutch season is now over. <laughs> uh, PSV are champions. I think most people uh, realize that. Just, um, you know, in 100 words or less, and I'm, I'm only kidding here, but only in 100 words or less, kind of sum up the season uh, as it played out and certainly PSV's title. 
Uh, well, it hasn't been as exciting as, as previous years, to be honest, because uh, PSV went top of the league in the second week of the season and were never knocked off. Uh, they went on to, to win the season by 17 points ahead of Ajax, which is really just amazing because um, Ajax obviously won the, the league f- the last four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, De Boer was the first coach to do it with Ajax, and which was an incredible achievement, but PSV have just wiped the floor with, with them and, and just walked to the... The, the title whereas and they've been very exciting very interesting good to watch with, with just incredible players whereas Ajax have just been brutal all season and uh, PSV were really uh, clear and had it wrapped up I think in, in January really and and what do you you know what do you chalk that up to is this a matter of Ajax taking a step back and, and maybe selling off a little too many pieces or you know, what, what exactly happened here that that created a dynamic where PSV was 17 points better? I think the key thing is PSV's individual players. Uh, when we look at the likes of Memphis Depay and Yetro Villems and Jorginho Vinaldum, Luke De Jong came in and had just an amazing season. I mean, Newcastle and Borussia Mönchengladbach fans just wouldn't recognise him, to be honest, if they saw him, because he's, he's been incredible. Uh, and that kind of individual quality has, has really benefited them, and, and that was what really saw them through in the, the first half of the season. In the second half of the season, they really they built on that and became much more of a, a, a team and a better unit uh, in, in all aspects. Whereas Ajax, where it wasn't so much that they had sold too many players, although they did lose uh, Daily Blend and, and GM De Jong, which was quite important. But they just they were just so slow. And, and I think one of the problems was Frank De Boer, in my opinion, because what he always did in the last few years was he always had some tactical move that could pull them out of a hole. Uh, in the last couple of years, and really kick on in the second half of the season. But this year, he tried basically the same things as he's always done with different players and expected the same results, and it was just never, ever going to happen. The other thing is that there was talks that he had overtrained his players in the, the January um, training camp, and that really uh, damaged the, the team for the second half of the season. And from the, in the second half of the season, they actually went downhill, whereas we're used to seeing Ajax really kick on and become an unstoppable machine after January. And so when you they were really they were really scraping results and they were losing and drawing to really bad teams. Um, and from then on, it was pretty much from, I think, the, the second game against Feyenoord, which they were even lucky to get a draw in, um, it, was, it was pretty much over and done with. Uh, you know, it's interesting here with PSV winning the title uh, and uh, UEFA shifting things for the Champions League draw. PSV goes into the into pot one for the draw for next year's Champions League. Is that's that's got to be a a big boost to PSV and and potentially um, a help to to Dutch football in general. Yeah, as definitely because if we look at how Ajax have fared in the Champions League league, uh, league the last couple of years, um, they've been quite unlucky to get uh, Giants who have just they've they've kind of performed well but they've just been unlucky to get the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona and just the very very top of uh, European football so I think with PSV if they can get a a decent draw um, it will make it a bit easier but it's not entirely um, a walk in the park for them it doesn't matter who they get because PSV were really quite underwhelming in Europe this season they they did get to the, the, the knockout stages of the Europa League but they were coming up against teams like Zenit and just the, tactically, Koku just wasn't at it. He, he was trying to dominate some games and and really not setting them up 
well and I think the the problem that they've got as well if they're going to set up in Europe the way they do in the Eredivisie then they'll find it very very difficult and the other aspect is obviously well we don't know who's going to still be at PSV next season obviously right. Depay's gone right. um, but there could be quite a few more departures and that could damage them if they can't really replace them well enough. Now let's talk about Depay and his, his big move to Manchester United this is uh, a player with Incredible ability, finished with a golden boot in uh, in the Eredivisie this year, and uh, and lots expected of him as he moves to the Premier League. Is is it is a little bit? Of, I, I know he's talented, uh, Peter, and I know we've seen it at the World Cup, we've seen it in the league. I just feel as though the hype is getting a little out of control. Yeah, and it, it always does. To be fair, um, I think you're right. The the key thing is that um, people just need to be patient. Um, this is a 21-year-old player who's had two full seasons in the Eredivisie. That's not real, really a lot to work with, and you can't really take too much from a, a European, uh, uh, an international tournament. I don't think either. But he has the the raw potential and, and ability to make it very, very far in football. I mean, he well, he can be one of the best players in in Europe, uh, and that's to do with his. His ability, his, his speed, his power, but also just his his mentality is remarkable. He has that Ronaldo-esque um, devotion to, to improving all the time. Uh, he calls himself a dream chaser, uh, which maybe sounds a bit obnoxious from a footballer, but I, I think with him it's very, very apt because he just wants to be the best all the time. And you see it in the way he plays as well for PSV. If, if things aren't going well, he's the man who has to come back and, and retrieve the ball and, and go himself to try and make the difference, which does make him a bit of a frustrating player. But I think he'll learn over the next couple of years and I think he will be a, a, a good player for, for Man United. But I just think people need to be patient and give him time to adapt to a new level and, 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 and kind of make mistakes in a, in a way. Uh, I think Van Gaal will give him the time to do that. But... Um, yeah, if, if, I think his, his ability and what he's got now will transfer over well to England, but it's not just going to be he's going to walk up to the, the Premier League and score over 20 goals like he did uh, this season in the Eredivisie. Yeah. There has to be a bit of a transition there. But yeah, over, uh, overall, I'm, I'm very excited about Memphis Depay and quite excited to see how, how he goes on this journey. How, from the Dutch perspective, was there any was there any real doubt that it would end up being United based on the Louis van Gaal connection? And and I'm not sure who else came up in with uh, in for him with any real big numbers, but it always seemed like this was a foregone conclusion on some level. Yeah, well, uh, Manchester United emerged as as the the number one candidate for him last season, but Tottenham were obviously interested in him, and, and Paris Saint Germain actually made an offer in in January. Um, and when it was announced that Depay was going to Manchester United uh, a couple of weeks ago, the technical director, Marcel Brands, actually said that 48 hours before the deal was struck with Manchester United, he would have said that Depay was going to Paris Saint-Germain, um, which is quite uh, interesting, really, because I think it would have been quite a, a bad decision for, for Depay. I, don't, I just don't see that as being a, a good option for him to go to. So it's kind of worked out well for him that Manchester United got a bit scared when they heard that news and, and made, the, made the move for him, and I think that's going to be the, the better option. Uh, so, obviously, a lot, a lot uh, on Memphis Depay's shoulder. He's got the amazing name, which uh, just makes him incredibly marketable. <laughs> I, I kind of wanted... I, I don't... He, did he wear... Did, did, at PSV, did he wear Depay on his jersey? They wear sh- names on the back of their shirts? 
Yeah, Memphis. Um, he he wore, always prefers to be called Memphis so he instead wore of Memphis. the pie because okay. uh, he doesn't have a good relationship with his dad. Fantastic. So he wore Memphis. I want. I yeah. wa- I'm going to need to get something with Memphis on the back of it. That's just fantastic. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, uh, Peter. Let's take a little bit of a left turn. Let's talk about Azed Alkmaar and a, and a couple of things happening there. One of them is this interesting news, and I haven't had anybody really give me a a, a good reason why this is happening. Billy Bean brought on as a consultant at Azed for. I suppose, money ball reasons. We know Billy Bean is a, a football fan. He's actually a Spurs supporter, he claims to be. What is Azed thinking here? What, do you, can, what can he actually do for them? Um, he seems to be brought on as, as a, an advisor, and it's quite an, an interesting move. And I think Azed is actually a very good club for him because they, they are quite progressive in terms of statistical analysis and how they have these uh, resources for it. Um, and I think it's going to be in terms of how to get a kind of statistical edge over um, other teams and, and try and make sure that they're sort of planning moves and stuff around around that based on statistics rather than well the, the usual this is how we've always done it, which is right. seems to be play, uh, seems to have plagued football for the last few years up until up until recently. So they are kind of adapting that. Um, that that idea of well stats can make a a good thing in in terms of how you how you set up in a game and also how you attract players um, and that's going to be quite crucial in, in how they do that because they have a a very good team and the problem is that they're going to lose quite a few of them I think this season uh, they always do um, so if they can kind of pick cheap options because Dutch teams don't have any money uh, <laughs> to to replace those players based on statistics then it will give them quite a a big advantage it seems as though he may be his his consultancy may be based on implementing an approach rather than actually being the man crunching the numbers yeah i think so yeah but as i say i think they do have quite a a proactive approach in terms of of statistics as well so it's going to be quite an interesting way of really combining the two every side of of the of the club into into getting the best out of out of the numbers that are available for them because I mean you see in statistical analysis in football it's it's really taking massive steps forward and well what he did in baseball is absolutely remarkable. So as a football fan it's gonna be it's kinda of the perfect match, I think, for him. Uh, Peter, the other thing happening in Azed Alkmaar that's interest, of interest to Americans is the play of Aaron Johansson. Now we we just had Josie Altador, who you know very well from his time there uh, go down with a hamstring injury for Toronto FC, which uh, makes uh, Johansson's form all the more crucial as the U.S. approaches a, a busy summer. He, he's been in great form. Uh, talk about Johansson, his progress, his development there since his move from Denmark. Yeah, he's, he's been he's been sublime. Um, he had a, a very poor start, to the, well, not a poor start, a rough start to the season because of injury, um, and it made it quite a worry because we saw him as, well, probably one of the more promising strikers in the league at the start of the season because as it looked as if they had the makings of a a, a good team uh, and it would be one that would get the best out of them. They do have a good team. They've done very, very well to beat uh, final to third place, a Europa League spot this season in the final day. Um, and it took a while for Johansson to kind of get back into the swing of things. But, I mean, you look at how he's progressed over the season and you can see that he was really getting into it and he finished on absolutely remarkable form. Um Two goals and an assist in the in the last game of the season in a four one win against Excelsior. One of which was an awesome overhead kick, 
the week before that, he scored a 35-yard 30, beast of a goal against uh, Nak Breda in a 3-2 win. Um, and before that, he was scoring and assisting goals all the time. So his, his run into the end of the season was really awesome. And I think next season, what he said at the start of the season was that he wanted a, a full year without any injuries. Um, he needs that if he can do that next season and, and really kick on and, and have a full season and be consistent. Uh, then, well, it's going to be a massive, a massive year for him, and then we'll see where he can go from then. But so far, he's been very impressive. His his touch and his technique is good. Um, his movement is is very good, and his finishing ability is improving all the time. So it's it's really an all round promising striker. American strikers go to Azad and perform. It just seems to happen. Uh, yeah, as you said, with the with the injuries, obviously that that's limited him. And, and you just got done talking about how it's going to be t- it's tough for Azad to hold on to players t- for Dutch teams in general, but certainly Azad specifically with their budget, he's a player that they're going to hold on to. But you imagine with one more good season, he could kick on to to a bigger league somewhere. Yeah, yeah, he only signed a, a new contract last summer, so it, I don't see him any trouble of, of leaving this summer. But yeah, next season, if if he has another, another break campaign, um, he'll be at a good age. He's 24 now. Uh, he'll be at a good age to, to really kick on. You'll have a lot of teams in, obviously, England and stuff to, to look at. Um, and the other thing is, I obviously think he's he's a much brighter prospect than, than Jose Altidore. For instance, he's much more consistent. A lot of people say, well, uh, Altidore scored a lot of goals in, in the Eredivisie. That was true. But he scored in a lot of blotches, whereas I think uh, he scored hat-tricks here and there in, in doubles against poor teams. Whereas uh, Johansson, I, I see, is a, a more effective and efficient and consistent player than I do Altidore and certainly one who's got more to his game than than Altidore. Yeah, certainly more uh, yeah, more facets to the game of Aaron Johansson. All right, let's uh, briefly touch on uh, the progress of Rubio Rabin, the uh, forward midfielder at, at Utrecht. He's a player that uh, is going to be in the U.S. U-20 team and certainly has a senior future based on what Jurgen Klinsmann uh, has done so far. Where is uh, Rubin in his development? Uh, yeah, he's had a very, very bright debut season. Uh, he was very, very impressive in his in his first few games for for um, for Utrecht, and they've had a really, really bad year. They are just a, a really strange club, to be honest with you. It's really unpredictable. <laughs> but um, Ruben has has performed well for a, a start season. He's he started a lot of games. Obviously, for a nineteen year old, it's not it's difficult for him to play. Uh, to start every game for fitness reasons and development. But um, yeah, overall, his, his movement's good, uh, his touch is good, and, and he seems to be blending in very well. So again, it'll be, it's going to be, it's early days, but it's interesting to see how he's going to perform. And I think he's going to be a, a key player for, for Utrecht who really need to kick on next season and, and get back up the table because the last two years have been just dire. But he has been quite a, a bright spot for them. Yep, not not twenty years old until March of next year, so a very young player with a lot of growing to do. Let's see if he can do that there. You checked uh, Peter McVitie. Follow him on Twitter. It's Peter McVitie M C V I T I E. Thank you for your time as always, Peter. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, I'll open up the phone lines and take your calls for a good uh, closing segment here on the web show. Soccer morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Don't go anywhere. Be right back.
Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we are back on Soccer Morning, worldsoccertalk.com. Taking your phone calls. Take you up to about 10.15 a.m. Eastern, 646-832-3909. Jump in. Whatever is on your mind, Sporting Kansas City and the New England Revolution tonight. Who you got in that one? Sporting Kansas City dealing with a rash of injuries. New England coming in pretty good, pretty good. Going to draw on the weekend against TFC. Now they go to the middle of the country for a game against Sporting. We'll have to see exactly who Sporting puts out there, whether or not they can put the, play the pressure that they're used to. Because you certainly want to pressure New England. Certainly want to take them off the ball. Give them an opportunity to sit on the ball and string some passes together. That's uh, that's trouble waiting to happen. Very much so. And speaking of this, uh, we just got done talking about Aaron Johansson with Peter McVitie. Good conversation there. All signs point to great things in the future for 24-year-old Aaron Johansson. He hasn't really had a chance to work his way into the U.S. national team fully. I expect that to be the summer. And he's got a chance now with a couple of friendlies coming up. And Josie Outdoor ruled out of those friendlies due to that hamstring pull. To to make his name, to make his mark, to become a lead character in this saga. Whether or not he is the lead character in the Gold Cup team, that's a different question. Probably dependent on Josie Outdoor's health. But Johansson looks good. And I imagine that most of you think that Johansson's the guy to step in. That's got to be that's got to be who you point to. He's the guy on form. He's a young player with a lot of potential. He gets you excited. Get you excited that guy does. Aaron Johansson, the Icelandic Alabamian. Was it Alabaman? I lived there for a while. Alabamian? It's got to be Alabamian, right? Alabama should be claiming Aaron Johansson right. You should drive into the state of Alabama on whatever major through affair goes through the state. They should have a sign that says home or birthplace, not home, birthplace of, of the U.S. national team's Aaron Johansson. That's what, it should ha- that's what it should say. Let's go to Pierce in Atlanta. What's up, my friend? Hey, what's going on? I actually wanted to just ask, you know, I, everyone watched the press conference and heard about LAFC, but I also keep seeing these um, – these points about their, oh, we might choose our colors or we'll pick a name and that LAFC might be a placeholder. And I don't know why they would do that or why they would change it because they're branding themselves as LAFC and using black and red for like two years. I don't, yeah. why do you think they would change it? Uh, you know, I, I think they just wanted to give themselves some uh, flexibility, but I think they're ultimately going to stick with it. I think that all the signs out of LA point to the fact that they'll probably just stick with what they've got already, Pierce. And and they are positioning themselves as black and red and as LAFC. I think they like the simplicity of LAFC, and I think they like black and red because it's um it's not unique to MLS, but it's certainly bold. Yeah, but I mean, there's, I, mean I, I guess I can't talk because I live in Atlanta. So. Did Atlanta just disappear? Are you there, Pierce? Did in Toronto, there's a lot of red going on. Yes, there is a lot of red in MLS. Hopefully, their dominant color is the black rather than the red. Let's just say that. You got anything else, man? No, that's it. I right, appreciate the phone call, Pierce in right. ATL. I'm not sure who. Oops. Let's let's click this button. 
Not sure who this is. Who's this? It's Hal Hershey, big fan. What's up? What? Which DP? Which DP hack do you believe about the New York Red Bulls? Are they going to get the two of the two leagues speaking about, or are they going to get a different DP? I have to. Re- you say the Red Bulls, right? That's what you said. Yes. And you said who do they get? Yeah, there's been there's been rumors of the two DP hikes. Oh, that, right, so. right, right. Uh well, I mean, I'm seeing uh, I'm seeing uh, stories that say that KBB might be uh, KBP might be going back to Milan. So I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't have any any lines on possible DPs for for the Red Bulls, and I think Jesse Marsh. I think they have to be careful. I think Ali Curtis has to be careful. You don't want to upset the apple cart by bringing in a guy number one who's not committed to the cause, and number two is gonna who's gonna alienate anybody. I mean, they have a balanced team right now. Yeah. Uh, got anything else, man? No. I appreciate the phone call. There goes uh, some guy who wanted to talk about DPs. I didn't catch his name. I apologize. I didn't mean to. not making fun of him. Ray in Milwaukee. What's up, dude? Uh, yeah. Um, how, how are you? I'm very good. What's on your mind today? Uh, some uh, soccer uh, economics. Um, I've never. I've been a soccer fan for a very long time, and I've never really cared too much about where the money comes from. And so I listened to Dr. Zemanski on your program, and I did a little bit of research myself. Now, I don't know if these numbers are 100% correct, but, uh, you know, Taylor Twelman tweeted out some stuff about the difference between player money, and I looked at it from a television perspective, because that's what Dr. Zemanski is really saying is what matters the most. And uh, I looked at uh, some stuff from Eric Gomez and... Uh, Tom Marshall said that the top tier teams in Mexico here in the United States are getting close to somewhere around $16 million per season when it comes to television money. And they're allotted to farm out their uh, television rights individually here and in Mexico. Uh And so I don't know what they're getting in Mexico, but if you did it, that's $13 million extra that top-tier teams are making, the MLS teams are currently getting with their television deal. And $13 million doesn't look like a lot of money in the big picture, or you can close the gap, but if you actually crunch the numbers, the television deal would have to be $2 billion if you look at it from an eight-year time frame. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying, Ray, and you're right. I mean, the, the the bottom line here is that MLS is way behind the curve. That's absolutely true. And $13 million is a ton of money to an MLS team. These are some of these teams are operating on very thin margins or in the in the red. So to have $13 million come in would be, you know, would be a, a coup. Now, they're getting more money out of this new TV contract than they ever did before, which should help them become more operationally stable and therefore perhaps invest more money. Um, remember also that in Mexico, many of those clubs are actually owned by television networks. So that's something to consider, but you're right. Uh, you know, the gap is considerable. I'm not sure what to do about it other than, you know, keep hoping that MLS TV ratings go up. Oh yeah. And that's another thing too, that I looked up too. uh, that the, uh, now I look just, it's easy to find bigger numbers because people tweet these stuff out. Uh, Chivas versus America here in the United States drew over 3 million viewers. Uh, now, 
I personally believe the biggest rivalry in MLS is between the two biggest markets in MLS because technically they have the draw. They have the biggest audience to draw from. I know people in Portland and Seattle may say something differently about having the best rivalry, but I, I could care I, I could care less about Portland or Seattle, uh, and I think New York and LA are they're they're the big money makers in every sport. So uh, their television rate, they just had a game. New York versus L.A. just had a game uh, like last month, right? And their television ratings was only about 300,000. Yeah, I, I don't think that's actually the biggest draw. I think Portland and, and Seattle is still the biggest draw because of the atmospheres. But I, I get your point, right? I, I don't know what to say other than MLS is way behind. And MLS needs to grow. And MLS needs to find a way to attract... All of those people who are watching Liga MX, get them to also watch MLS or to some of them to defect, I guess. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's a reason, there's a reason that, that so many people watch Liga MX because it's a, it's a quality league. It's got good players and, and there is a cultural connection for millions of Americans. Right, right. I would agree with that. I, I, look, I watch both leagues. Uh, I, I, um, you know, I was a fir- you know, I used to believe in this slow growth method that, uh, you know, that the commissioner and MLS destroying all of us. But the more I do these numbers, uh, he's nuts. They're lying to us if he's going to be a, a top tier league without some type of major, uh, investment from the ownership. Well, of course. And uh, you've heard me rail about that, Ray. You've heard me rail about Don Garber talking about this league being one of the top ones in the, in the world in 2022, and yet they're not putting their money where their mouths are. So I, I, see, your, I see your point, Ray. I appreciate the call, man. I, I feel like Ray was giving us a PowerPoint presentation on, uh, I don't know, the state of MLS TV money and, and ratings. Roberto, what's up? What's up, man? Um, there's actually a segue that I wanted to talk about about MLS. Um, in your personal opinion, when do you believe MLS will be uh, forgotten in the sense that it's labeled as a retirement league by negative MLS viewers. When when will that stop? Yeah. Uh, when MLS stops hire, stops signing players that are 33 years old from Europe. I mean, I don't think that it's ever going to stop. Whether it's true in the in the specific sense, and well, it's true. Whether it's accurate and fair is a different question than whether people call it a retirement league. People will will continue to call MLS a retirement league as long as MLS is sucking on the teat of the high-profile European player who was at Arsenal or Manchester United or Barcelona or Real Madrid or Bayern Munich or whatever. So it's it, until that yeah. until they stop doing that until the stars of MLS, the ones who are the biggest names, the biggest names in MLS. Until those players are players who came through MLS or players who were young and MLS purchased at 23 or 24 and turned into stars, it's never going to stop. So youth development plays a role? Yeah, absolutely it does. You have to get, you have to create stars within the league who then become the biggest names in the league. And until that dynamic switches, because right now, who's the biggest name in MLS? Tom Dwyer. No, who's the biggest name player in MLS period? And not regardless of where he came from. Kaká, David Villa. Kaká, David Villa. Right, you could pick either one of those guys. Kaká, David Villa. Those guys are the reason that there's a retirement uh, league tag on the league. So until until the biggest name in the league is a guy like Dom Dwyer or or even Bradley Wright Phillips who of course played a lot of his soccer in England, 
but kind of became a big star here with his goals, until those guys are the leading figures of the league and the league can use them to sell the competition, it's going to be called a retirement league. And, I, you know, it really, it's no skin off of my back as a fan. I'm going to watch the league regardless, but I know that people get upset about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it viewed the um, negative uh, viewpoint all around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Basically. Absolutely. And and you know what? And, MLS was, in the long run, and I'm not advocating for this now because I still think there's a place for the Kakas. Kakas have been amazing. I think he's a boon to the league. Uh, there's a place for David Villa. There's obviously a place for Thierry Henry when he was here. Uh, Robbie Keane's been fantastic. But in, when the league gets to the point where they stop spending the millions of dollars they're spending on those players and spend it on players who are developed here or already here who are stars here, until that happens, MLS will you know will probably not reach its potential. I mean that that's that's just a a fact of the matter. We're going through a, a transitional phase here where MLS is both trying to be a quality league from the bottom to the middle. And, and to the, you know, to the, to the, uh, to the upper echelons of its talent, but then also tacking on these big names to try to steal some extra publicity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just have one more question. Yeah. Um, what do you think about Josie Altador's, um, injury? Do you feel like it's going to affect a lot of the, um, pre Gold Cup matches for the, um, United States against uh, the Netherlands and Germany? Yeah, yeah. He's, ar- he's already out of those games. He's eliminated for, uh, from consideration for those games. I think you're going to see, Obviously, Aaron Johansson's going to get a shot. I mean, this is going to require Klinsman to juggle things with his lineup. I think that's the biggest question right now is what he decides to do with the formation if he's going to end up playing guys like Aaron Johansson or whether he pushes Clint Dempsey up top or uh, you know even young players like Rubio Rubin, who I don't expect to be in that team because he's with the U-20s, but when you get to the gold cup and you have limited options i mean we look let's look around mls jossie's artist what kind of player is he for jurgen klinsman with the with the galaxy he's a forward with klinsman he seems to want to make him into a winger is he a four can he play as a forward for for klinsman on a, on a regular basis and is he good enough to help fill the gap with with outdoor out again i think more important than who replaces outdoor is how that replacement changes the way the us plays yeah, yeah, of course, especially against these big teams that we're playing against. Yeah, against the, the Netherlands and Germany, absolutely. You're, you're going to need to put your best foot forward to have even a shot of it. And maybe it's better to, you know, to have a guy who's better in possession, who can create his own shot, who can, uh, you know, uh, who can also play provider as well as, um, as well as striker. And Aaron Johansson's got a good skill set. Well, hopefully we'll see it on display here. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. All right, man. Appreciate the phone call. Yeah, Roberto, yeah, no Roberto talking uh, talking about some interesting topics there. Okay, that's going to do it for a Wednesday edition of Soccer Morning here on WorldSoccerTalk.com. Thank you very much to both of our guests, John Wallen and uh, Peter McVitie. Those guys were good, don't you think? I think they were good. Uh, let's uh, let's send you over to Backheel.com slash store where you can buy yourself a Soccer Morning mug. It's right there. Hi. Hi. Go to 3DLFC.com to buy the t-shirt that's right over my shoulder right there. It's a fantastic looking t-shirt. We're on uh, Twitter at, at Soccer Morning. iTunes, hit us up over there. Give us a rating and review. Thank you to Producer Trevor, and we'll talk to you guys on Thursday. Later. <laughs>